uh, I would like to talk about hate. Several weeks ago, Tim, not anybody in here, Tim decided to run for a position on the Evans School Board. He's a teacher in the district. The school had a candidate's forum open to the public where they could introduce themselves and where people could ask questions. A few days before the meeting, Tim's younger daughter found a book in the Evans School Library that depicted severely inappropriate behavior not suitable for children. She brought the book home, showed it to her father, and who was appalled that the school would allow such material uh, in the library. So the night of the meeting came up for the candidates, and Tim expressed his concerns about the book and its effect on young children. It was not received well. He was ridiculed. He was verbally abused. After the meeting, he would get regular phone calls from people saying not good things. To make matters worse, the school that Tim worked at suspended him. And Tim's children were ridiculed at the school, which just added more suffering to the family. Tim did not get elected to the school board, and as of a few days ago at least, his family are still being persecuted, and Tim still does not have his job. Let's pray. Father God, as believers, we are inundated inundated with hate. And we know why, but it's still hard to deal with. And I pray this morning that you would uh, open our hearts to your word, that you would soften our hearts to your word. I pray, Lord, that we would recognize when we might want to retaliate in kind. And I pray, Father, that we'd also realize that uh, if there's going to be hate in the world, it needs to belong to the world, not to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I think the first way to, to begin talking about this is to uh, talk about who you were in G- before Jesus Christ, before you became a believer. What we just talked about is only a small portion, a fraction of the hate that's directed toward Christians. How can people be like that? Romans 1, 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking, and in their foolish hearts they were, dar- were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So Paul here says that for all people, God's attributes are plainly known. But he also says that many people ignore or even reject those attributes that are plain and obvious, and they reject it in favor of worshiping something else. Paul uses words that describe much of the worship in the world during his time. People worshipped all kinds of false gods, and they made images of these things called idols. They could be birds or reptiles or people. They would make their gods into images. Jupiter and Juno and 
Nemesis and Neptune. Neptune, by the way, is the god of the sea and earthquakes. And I'm really sure he lives in the sea just off the coast of Southern California. (laughs) You know, you might say that before you became a believer that you never worshipped idols. Perhaps not. But you did worship other things. And take your pick. Maybe it was wealth or power or position, identity, physical appearance, political movement, comfort, drugs, technology, entertainment, influence, self. All these things and more so-called modern people worship in rejection of the Almighty God. As people worship something other than the God, they fall into the inevitable consequences of that worship. Also described by Paul in the same chapter of Romans. Chapter 1, verses 28 through 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy and murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they did not know God's Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You know, when we read a list like this, and there are lots of lists like this in the New Testament, people will look at this and go, well, and then they'll, they'll bring out the big gun of murder. They'll say, I never murdered anyone, kind of in an effort to justify themselves. If I were to give you a piece of paper today that had the list of all these evils that Paul talked about, there's 20 of them. And I ask you to circle all the ones that you participated in, in some degree or another, before you were a believer. How many do you think you would circle? 16? 17? 18? 19? Yeah, I circled 17. This is who you were before Christ. Peter says something similar, 1 Peter 4, 3 through 4. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised. When you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Peter adds six things to our list of evils. And he adds that people who participate in these things are astonished that Christians, that you and I, don't want to participate with them in these things. And they mock us. They really ridicule us. Or worse. As a young Christian, I was invited to a party by some of my pre-Christian friends, where there were opportunities to do some of the things uh, that are listed there. I thank God that he gave me a 1 Corinthians ten thirteen moment. And he protected me, but my so-called friends disparaged me and vilified me and for not participating with them. One of them said in the most mocking way, you've changed. I can look back on that now and thank God that he protected me out of that. And I can thank God that they saw in me something different. But I can tell you at the time I was ashamed and I was hurt. And I was frightened. You are a believer. You are a Christian. And the world hates you. And there's a reason the world hates you. John 15, 18 through 21. If the world hates you, 
Jesus says, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the world that I, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do on your account, to you on account of my name, because you do not know him who sent me. Before Christ, let's be honest here, we hated Christians. Now, this is who we are as non-believers. Now, you might say, I didn't hate people. But perhaps you thought Christians were strange or weird, or you wanted to avoid them. The Bible says that before Christ, you were opposed to God, hostile to him, and opposed to his followers. You used to hate Christians. I used to hate Christians. As a Christian, now you are hated by the world. And what may be different today, as opposed to many years ago, is that the hatred is more open and growing more hostile. The world hates us, and we want to strike back. There's another kind of hate. It can be hard to comprehend sometimes, I think. And bear with me in this. It is the hatred believers can have for one another. Now, hate may seem like a strong word in this context. Maybe we can better understand it as disdain or contempt or scorn or arrogance. It's the hard attitude that considers another believer's doctrine, practice, preferences as disagreeable or wrong or stupid or even sinful. And therefore, that person is worthy of, if not my hate, my disdain and my mocking. It is this thinking that separates believers. This is a self-elevation, me above you. I attended a Bible college, and like most Bible colleges, they had chapels twice a week. I'll come back to that in a moment, but first a little bit of background. The school I attended was part of an association called the Regular Baptist Convention. Now, at the time, I didn't know that there were regular Baptists. The church I went to was part of the General Association of Baptists. It occurred to me, though, that if I wasn't a regular Baptist, did that make me an irregular Baptist? <laughs> and what are the medical complication, implications of that? <laughs> I looked this up. Currently, there are 84 denominations, associations, fellowships, and the like of Baptists in North America. Here's our, some of the groups. There are conservative Baptists. I didn't find any liberal Baptists. <laughs> there are cooperative Baptists. So if you're not a part of the cooperative Baptists, are you, does that make you an uncooperative Baptist? There are full gospel Baptists. There are general six principle Baptists. If I have five principle, does that leave me out? There are independent Baptists. But maybe not so independent because there's at least four groups of independent Baptists. <laughs> I said there are regular Baptists. There are all—I <laughs> find this hilarious. Uh, there are also old regular Baptists. Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah. I—that uh, conjures up an image of a guy walking down the sidewalk, kind of hunched over, using a cane with very long white beard. You know, that's that's the picture I have. But there are regular Baptists. There are old regular Baptists, and get this: there are primitive Baptists. There are separate Baptists, but for some Baptists, being separate is not enough. There are the separate Baptists in Christ. 
and this is my favorite, two-seed-in-the-spirit predestinarian Baptist. What the heck is that? (laughs) Which leads me to my next point. One chapel I attended at the school I went to spent the entire time talking about what they called the distinctives of the regular Baptists. That is, they talked about all the things, doctrines, preferences, practices, that make regular Baptists different from all other Baptists. The implication, the strong implication, was that the distinctives that made the regular Baptists so distinctive also made them better. Me above you. I'm not bashing denominations. God can use churches that band together for a common purpose to advance the kingdom of God. And I'm not here concerned about what we might call important doctrinal issues. There are those doctrines that we would have a closed hand about. That's what Derek, the image that Derek used. We have a closed hand on some doctrines. Doctrines like the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully human. Doctrines like the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection of Christ and the bodily return of Christ. These are things we can't compromise on. We can't negotiate, even if it means breaking fellowship. But most things Christians disagree on or practice differently are not things and should not be things that we use to separate ourselves or elevate ourselves above other believers. That is, as Paul says, acting merely human. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Paul calls the Corinthians infants, immature, full of jealousy, acting out of the flesh, behaving merely human. A merely human seeks to elevate themselves over others. And you know how it goes. You can, you can imagine this. There's two Corinthians believers talking with each other, and one is, follows Apollos, one follows Paul. And the guy who follows Paul says, listen, you know, I, I know you follow Apollos, and he's a good guy, he's a good Bible teacher. You know, but I follow Paul, and the reason I follow Paul is because he saw Christ on the Damascus Road. That makes him better. Makes me better for following him. That problem in Corinth was about personality. They also had another problem. <laughs> of course, they had a lot of problems. They had a problem with doctrine or practice. In Corinth, as in most Roman and Greek cities, there were many places of worship to false gods, temples and the like. Part of the practice of those who worship false gods would be bring animal sacrifices for various reasons. The priests would take the animal, they'd sacrifice it, they'd take some of the parts, the really not useful parts, They'd burn those for the sacrifice. And then the priest would take some of the leftover meat, the good stuff, for themselves, you know, because they would like to have a steak once in a while. And they'd take the rest of it and sell it. And so you could be walking down the Agora in Corinth and you see the the temple to the the god of chewing gum. And in front of the temple, there'd be the tables out and a tent over the tables and there'd be selling, you know, cuts of meat that you could buy and take home and barbecue. The problem for some believers was the question of whether buying such meat called idol meat was sinful because it had been sacrificed to idols. 
First Corinthians 8, Paul rightly says about their practice, Now food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and we're no better if we do. But you can probably see how this might go. A guy in Corinth is going to go out to have dinner at the local Olive Garden. He's going to have some fettuccine Alfredo. And he sits down at his table, and he looks across the way. He sees one of his uh, fellow Christians, churchgoers, and he sees that churchgoer with a plate of spaghetti and a six-ounce sirloin steak. And the guy knows that the temple to the god of chewing gum was selling six-ounce steaks earlier. So he walks over to the fellow and says, Listen, how can you do that? You're eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. The other believer says, It's just meat. There's nothing to this. Get your act together. You are so immature. Go sit down. So one issue was meat. In our day, the issue might be a political party, Democratic, Republican, the Green Party, the Libertarian Party, on and on, or a, or a particular politician. Please don't throw things at me now. could be Biden or Kennedy or Pence or Trump or DeSantis or Haley or Scott. Or an issue, immigration, tax policy, health care, COVID policy, welfare, global warming, gun control. Or it might be about a biblical issue, like spiritual gifts. Now, you may or may not know this, but there are some believers who call themselves cessationists, meaning that they believe that certain gifts don't exist for today. Things like gifts of healing and miracles and speaking in tongues and prophecy. But there are also continuationists, those who believe that all gifts are for today. But within those two groups, there are subgroups. For example, in the cessationist group, there are the soft cessationists. Those people like to give you hugs. There are hard cessationists, and there are harsh cessationists. In the continuationist group, there are the Pentecostals, which are called the first wave. The Charismatics, called the second wave. There's another group called the third wave, Evangelicals. And then there's another group that has been dubbed Chaosmatics. People can get upset with one another over things like this. And then there are the Reformed groups. We're part of the Reformed tradition. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Derek would say, Christ plus nothing. Yet there are many reform groups who seem to focus on minutia. And sometimes it gets hostile. I found a uh, board on the web. A board is just a place where people can talk with one another about certain subjects. This one is called the Baptist Board. I'm not bashing Baptists. But here's a short discussion that I came across. One fellow says, I've been looking for something more reformed. I do post on a reformed site a lot, but is more devoted to politics. I would prefer a deeper discussion here on the Baptist board, though. We Baptists need to get away from the petty. A reply. Well, it's a good board, and I'll probably see you from time to time. But if you think there's no petty bickering, you might be surprised. Wait till you see the Vantillians and the Clarkians square off over scripturalism. How many Vantillians in here? 
There he is, right there. How many Clarkians? And there are much, much worse examples I could have given you where people just go at each other. Christians go at each other. I suppose it might be unconscious at times, although I think most of the time it's very conscious. And it's a conscious attempt to separate believers from other believers. And it can lead to pride and to arrogance and to bickering. And yes, hate. This kind of hate happens in local churches as well. Philippians 4, 1 through 3. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Here we have two believing women. Names are written in the book of life. They are laborers, have been laborers with Paul in the gospel. They're at odds with each other. We aren't told what the problem is. We aren't told what's, what's going on. It sounds like they're pretty mad at each other. Galatians 5.15 But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Portions of Christianity have devolved into seeking how I am different than you, and because I am different than you, I am better than you, and you are worse than me. And that justifies my hatred. When believers say things about us or about what we believe or what we practice, we want to strike back. Sounds familiar. So I've taken quite a bit of time here to get to this, but here's the cultural counterfeit. The counterfeit is that believers have taken on the lie of the enemy. That hate, anger, disdain, disregard is the best way, perhaps the only way, to deal with those who oppose us, whether it's from the world or from other believers. I have seen believers almost come to blows over when to take communion. So what do we do? Well, before we get to that point, I think it's important to remember who we are in Christ. We talked a few minutes ago about who we were in Christ. Let's talk about who we are. A few minutes ago, well, I talked about that. Who are we after believing in Jesus Christ? What changes? There are dozens of scriptures we could look at, but for time's sakes, I want to just highlight a few. I want to start with 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The descriptors Paul uses here to describe you all come from passages in the Old Testament meant to describe originally God's people the Jews, but now they describe God's people, believers, Jew or Gentile. They describe who you are, and they describe why you are. First, you are a chosen race. You're not an ethnic race, but a race of people, the race of the people of God, who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. You are chosen by God for his purposes out of his love for you, permanently adopted into his family. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. I told you the story of how my mom explained me being adopted. 
the key fact in there is that she chose me. God has chosen you. You are people for God's own possession. You're not only chosen, but you're God's possession. In Exodus, where that descriptor first appears, it says that we are his treasured possession. This, of course, like the concept of being a chosen race, should be viewed not only individually, but as a corporate body. We should be viewed corporately, together. When the world hates you, it hates all of us. Together, the Bible says we are God's temple, where he dwells with his people, his own possession. Second Corinthians 6.16, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them, and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You are a holy nation. God calls the Jew, called the Jews to be holy. And that holiness was to be, uh, was intended to be expressed in faithful relationship to God is demonstrated primarily through the keeping of the law. As we've seen in the book of Hebrews, we are not under the law, we're not under the old covenant, but under the new covenant, not based on what we can do under the law, but which is impossible to keep, but based on the work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.14, For by a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You could also translate that, those who are being made holy. And then why you are. You are a royal priesthood. You are a kingdom of priests. The Jews were to be a kingdom of priests which is an unusual thing to say to a group of people who had to go to Levitical priests to, to meet with God. However, the idea of being a kingdom of priests was that the Jews as a nation would be the presence of God to the world. The Jews were to show God. As a royal priesthood, children of the king, the king has commissioned us to show God the world, show God to the world. I like what Caleb said last week, that we are God's imagers. Show people who God is and how God loves them. Second Corinthians five, eighteen through twenty one. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, what do we do? Well, I would suggest that uh, what we do is behave as exiles. What should we do when we enter the public square? What should we do when we're on social media? or on a street with your neighbor at, your, at a job with your coworkers when you are hated? I'm going to suggest two answers. One is a, the answer that is kind of a direct response to the hate, and the other is more of a broad behavior, how we should behave in general. So first, we live in this country, unusual for the world. We have the right, and we can even say we have the obligation to counter hate toward us and to advocate when hate is directed toward Christianity. One thing you can do, if you're called to it, get in the public square. Vote, run for office, help a campaign you once, uh, or that you support, protest, 
with gentleness and respect. Participate with an advocacy organization. But remember, not everybody's called to that. And remember, politics is a cesspool. And you can get easily contaminated. You have to be prepared. Pray that God will keep you in his strength. Pray that God will protect you. And be prepared for a lot of hate to come your way. But in all of it, be gentle and respectful. You can also participate with groups and organizations that encourage or promote biblical values, especially when those values are under attack. Compass Care. You can work with them. You can volunteer for them. You can raise money for them. You can write a check. But again, with gentleness and respect. And then what about social media? I, I don't do social media, mostly because it's technical and I have a hard time with that. <clears throat> but I know a lot of people do, and I know that there's a lot of hate on social media, whether it's believers or non-believers. I asked Derek for some thoughts because he engages on social media a lot, and he does it well. I asked him for some thoughts about about he does engage with social media, and he gave me some rules, his rules for himself. He said, ask who is your audience. He has said to ask, what are you trying to accomplish with this post? He says, ask what motivates this post. Is it fear or anger or faith or love? Is the post helpful or harmful, and will it glorify God? And then in this post, are you simply reacting? And will you regret it later? And he says in all of it, dialogue with gentleness and respect. And then secondly, Peter calls his readers, the readers of his first letter, well, both letters really, he calls them elect exiles. They are exiles, temporary residents who are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We, this is not our home. This is not our home. Remember, this is not our home. And then Peter writes something else. He says this about them and about you. 1 Peter 1, 3-7 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter wrote to people he knew were suffering persecution and that he knew that the persecution would get worse. The hatred would get worse. He reminds them of their secure place in Christ. They have an inheritance that is imperishable. They are guarded by God's power for the culmination of their salvation when Christ returns. And the trials that we suffer by the hands of the world will result to glory to God. So that's the foundation of how we're to respond to the lie that the enemy of the enemy, that hate is the way. Peter gives several exhortations throughout his first letter as to how we exiles are to behave toward the world and toward one another. What Peter says can be grouped into three categories. The first is just personal conduct. First Peter one thirteen. 
Therefore, preparing your minds for actions and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says, get ready, be ready, because the hate's coming. And he says, then depend on God's grace. Not on your power's persuasion. Not of your ability to fight back. He says, depend on your grace, on God's grace. First Peter 2, 1 through 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Peter says, get rid of the crud. And the crud he talks about, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, all the things that we direct at other people. Get rid of it, he says, and instead, crave God's word. So how do we believe as exiles toward, behave as exiles toward one another? First Peter one twenty two, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love your fellow exiles. Even if they practice something different than you. Even if they believe some teaching or doctrine that's different than, from how you believe. Love them. Secondly, 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You have, as a believer, at least one spiritual gift. The purpose of the spiritual gift is that it's to be used to serve one another. But Mike, I don't know my spiritual gift. Just start serving. God will make sure he uses it. And then 1 Peter 5, 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Be humble. I think that humility could be said to be the opposite of hate. Be humble. And then how do we behave as exiles toward the world? 1 Peter 2, 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among non-believers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Behave honorably. Take a page out of the uh, Klingon philosophy book, where honor was held very high. They didn't do it very well, but still. And notice here that as you act honorably and people see your good deeds that they'll glorify God for them on the day of visitation, on the day that Christ comes back. People will glorify God for the things they see you do from one of two points of view. If they're believers, they'll glorify God because of what what God has done through you. And if they're not believers, they're going to glorify God because he worked through you and they saw it and they didn't recognize it. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15, and this is one a lot of Christians have problems with. I'm one of them. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15, Be subject to the Lord, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise God, or to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Yes, that's what it says. Be subject to every human institution. Now, Peter has personal experience with this. There was a time that he was told by the governing authorities not to preach the gospel. And Peter said, no, I'm going to preach the gospel. God doesn't ask us to submit when submitting means to 
oppose God when submitting means not doing something that God wants you to do. But otherwise, submit to every human institution. First Peter 3, nine, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this to you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. If someone speaks badly of you, bless them. If someone insults you, bless them. If someone screams at you in hate, bless them. may not be easy, but fortunately we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us to do that. 1 Peter three fourteen and 16. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that you, when you are slandered, those who revile you, let me read that again. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So when it comes down to it, it's love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love the people in the world. And to do it all with gentleness and respect. I want to add one more thing. Call it the joy of anticipation. <clears throat> Barely four months after Adolf Hitler came to power in Germany in 1933, Dietrich Bonhoeffer preached a short sermon on Ascension Day. Ascension Day is the day that, that, that commemorates Christ, uh, his ascension into heaven. And it also looks forward to Christ's return. Bonhoeffer's sermon was about the joy of anticipation, the anticipation of Christ and his promised return. I'm going to read just a paragraph for it. The joy of anticipation in the expectation of what? In the, ex- in, in the expectation of last things. For the Lord of heaven, who stills the hunger and thirst, the longing of his church community through faith, this Lord, whom we cannot see, but whom we love nonetheless, he will come again. The curtain is opening. We shall see him face to face. He will come back once again to this earth on which we are strangers, and he will lead the homeless, who in the church through faith have been hoping in God's new land, home to our Heavenly Father, when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy, for you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Then the church's time of waiting will be over. Then the end of, the, of time, the time of faith will have come. Then joy will no longer be veiled or in fear and holding back. Then will come the time of fulfillment, the time of everlasting seeing, when blessedness breaks in. Then he will appear, our brother the Lord, and his church will fall down before him in holy joy. You rejoice with an indescribable joy. Then the world and the church will fall away, and Jesus himself will be our joy. For here we have no lasting city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Let's pray. Father God, we deal with hate a lot. Most of it comes from the world. We shake our heads at what people say and what people do and what people suggest and legislation that people propose and pass. We weep, Lord, when Christians disdain one another. We realize, Lord, that the way out of that, the way 
that you want us to behave is to, is, to, is to behave as if this place is not our home, to behave as if, as if we are exiles and temporary residents. So help us to behave that way, Lord. Help us to love one another. Help us to love the world. Help us to do that with gentleness and respect. And Lord, help us to look up and anticipate your coming. In Jesus' name, amen.